Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Tavern Voices. My name is Kevin King and with me as always is the great Tyler Crawley, the talk radio extraordinaire. And in case you missed it, go back and listen to the Kevin King show uh, from this past week where I got to interview Tyler. And, uh, you know, I think he did pretty well being that he's usually on the other side of the of the <laughs> microphone. So I appreciate that, man. Hey, no, I mean, it's it's. I appreciate that because, but I also want to correct you. Anything that I'm on is uh, automatically the Tyler Crawley show. So in that case, it was the Tyler Crawley show featuring Kevin King, but I get, I get what you're saying. Well, you know, however it helps you sleep at night, that's, that's just what you do what you got to do, man. You just do what you do. I try. I try. Yeah, you know, you don't try very hard. So, uh, we, I, you know, this week, we, and we're also back on a streak, may I point out, two weeks in a this row. Two, two in a row? Two in a row, man. That's, that's uh, yeah, that is a streak, according to the Webster's Dictionary. You know, if this was a professional sports team, they would just say that we had eight out of the last nine attempts were successful. <laughs> Watching the, that the, is true. That is true. But 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 I'm saying is if it's also a streak. So they go with whatever statistic sounds better. And a streak is always better than out of out of how many ever last you did. So I'm going to go with streak. OK. Hey, a, a new streak has started and a continued streak in North Carolina is economic incentives. And I know that's what you want to start the conversation with. So I'll just let you uh, take the lead on that. Yeah. No. So uh, I hate incentives. Uh, well, I really hate any time the government gets involved in the private sector. It, it never works out well for for anyone except for the government. And even that's maybe suspect. Uh, so down here in Wilmington, and this is probably just the latest example, but clearly this is an issue all across North Carolina. Uh, but in Wilmington, there's a plant down here that closed in 2009, uh, you know, right after everything kind of you know went bad, went south. And they closed the plant down. They shuttered it. And now they're thinking about reopening it, I guess, because they're expanding. Economy's getting better. So now they're going to expand again. They're thinking about reopening it. And they've gone to the city, uh, Wilmington, the city council and the county commission, New Hanover County, and asked and said, hey, you guys want to give us some money for opening this plant up? Which I don't fault a company for doing that. I mean, it's it's sort of like me walking into a store and being like, hey, you guys want to give me anything for free? And they're like, no. And I'm like, all right. I mean, you can't blame someone for trying. If someone wants to give you something for free, go for it. So they asked for it, and now they're debating it in the uh, New Hanover County Commission last night, uh, Tuesday or Monday night, decided they were going to do it. The city council looks like they're going to do it. And so they're going to get probably just over half a million dollars in incentives. And it's over five years, so it's you know nothing ridiculous when you look at our local budgets. But I just don't like giving companies money, especially companies – uh, or really any company. But I especially don't like giving one money that, you know, shut down when things got tough and laid everybody off. And we're going to basically reward them for that behavior. Uh, and I kind of hate that I have to have this debate because what really worries me about incentives is, and you're seeing this right now, you know, liberals get involved and they go, no, we should be giving this money to film. And then Republicans go, no, we should be giving it to, you know, whoever, uh, in this case, you know, this factory, cause we got to employ people and we need these jobs and not everyone can work, you know, in a, in a, you know, for a startup. And so we need these jobs for the blue collar workers. And what really worries me is that we're having a conversation about who we should be giving money to and not, should we be giving money to people? And I think that's where, you know, we've kind of taken a turn for the worse that it's no longer this philosophical, should we give money to companies, but now who? 
And I think that really just highlights how how lost we are in the fact that we're basically just giving companies money for doing something that they're already doing. I mean, it's not like the company isn't going to open the plant. Now, maybe they'll go somewhere else and, you know, they'll give them money. But it's it's going to become it, it already is a zero sum game where so I think they're going to open a plant in Florida. And so Florida, so we're competing with Florida. So Florida is going to give them money. We're going to give them money. I guess they want to come here. So I guess maybe we can match Florida. We'll get them. But who benefits from that? Nobody benefits. We're, we're fighting with each other. It, that's like a shell game. Uh, and after a while, it's going to get real. It's going to get. It's going to become problematic. And like I said, I don't blame the companies for asking. I would ask. Uh, I blame the officials for you know giving in uh, when pretty much every study highlights that there's no real there's nothing that they can measure that says that incentives are ever worth it so it's unfortunate that it's happening here in my neck of the woods and and the new Hanover county commission's republican uh and i like him a lot um i like the you know chairman woody white uh uh, commissioner uh skip Watkins, patricia kusick they're all rock solid republicans they've lowered taxes they fought against spending they've done all these things this is this is one thing i don't like about them uh but to me it's kind of a big one because it's something that happens way too frequently Well, what do you say to the people who, like you just said, we're competing with other states and they say, well, we have to do this. We we don't have a choice or else just every job in the world will go to a neighboring state and our unemployment rate will will be what is greatly impacted by a lack of incentives. Well, I I don't think it will. I mean, this is sort of the same argument I have when it comes to, you know, people go, well, China's subsidizing their steel. So, you know, that's that's a good thing. Uh, you know, all the time we talk about uh, foreign aid. Well, when a co- when a country subsidizes a product like steel and then sells it to us, that's technically foreign aid. It's the exact same thing. And the reason I also say it's not a big deal is because eventually they're going to have to stop doing it because you cannot do it forever. Uh, at some point, it's going to bankrupt you because you're essentially giving somebody money for something that you're not really benefiting from. It's you know, it's it, that's why you know people talk about these you know monopolistic practices where you know price gouging or I guess I guess the opposite of price gouging where somebody lowers their price so much it puts all their competitors out of business and then they're the only ones left. And then they start, you know, then they price gouge and they and they charge an exuberant amount of money. That doesn't happen in the real world because the minute somebody did that a competitor would step in and start charging just less than them. And that whole business, that's why no one's ever done it successfully. You can't do it because it's something that cannot last. And so if Florida started subsidizing all these companies, they all went to Florida, it would bankrupt Florida. Florida would have to stop doing it. And then those companies would leave because it doesn't make sense for them to be there. And so it's a very short term way of thinking because at some point you have to stop doing it because you're not, you're not getting a benefit from it. Um, and like I said, that's why very few economic studies can prove that incentives are worth it because we don't know. I mean, and, and most times it doesn't. I mean, if you look at what we're doing down here, I think they said it's going to create 45 jobs. And then you look at, you know, um, with the city, the city and the county don't get any income tax. All they get is property tax and sales tax. And so maybe you can make some argument that somehow they're going to get some of that money back through the taxation, but I guarantee you it's not. And so equal. And so eventually it's going to bankrupt the states that are doing that. And then they're going to have to stop. And so it's, and this is sort of a, um, you know, obviously an extreme example because it would take a long time for that to happen, but at some point it would. And right now we're seeing the fiscal danger that so many states are in. Um, I, it just, it's not a, it's not a win-win situation. And at some point it's going to start hurting us. 
And, you know, we should be spending that money on something that's more important and let, and just, and I wish all states would stop doing it. Um, but if states want to subsidize and let them do it because they're going to have to stop at some point. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I was throwing out the the obvious, well, we have to do this because that's what every Republican oh, yeah. local official ever says. Um, you know, at, when I was back in Asheville a few years ago, it was when General Electric was doing their big expansion in North Carolina. And they hit up, I think it was something like eight or nine different cities and counties for over $21 million in incentives all over the state. Uh, you know, to bring in, you know, it was 50 or hundred jobs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when you start piecing it together, it's, it's such a game, but I think the dangerous part is that people never look at what happens when you pick winners and losers, right? They, they look at this one piece in a vacuum and say, well, this one particular company needs to come here and bring X amount of jobs. And they think if they just do that for every single company or that it will lift up the smaller companies, or there's a, there's a lot of excuses, but they don't say what would happen if we didn't do that. You know, what if we lowered taxes for everyone? The example I always think of is in Asheville, once again, there have been millions of dollars in incentives for uh, Sierra Nevada to come into Henderson County, just over the line from Buncombe County and Asheville. Then you had millions of dollars for um, New Belgium to come in in the in the River District, which is really a, a big floodplain in Asheville. And I think to myself, you know, this is great. You've got new jobs. You've got these these tourist draws. You've got these really cool breweries, and so it's it's all nice and well. But what about the other hundred breweries in Asheville who who are bankrolling this? They're not getting any tax cuts. They're employing people. They're trying to grow and you're not doing anything to help them. So th this is why I can never understand why the left or right ever supports incentives. When you look at it from the perspective of the little guy, like everyone wants the whole buy local, help the small business owner mentality. Well, that's exactly. And that's why I mentioned the fact that uh, this national gypsum company, I mean, when, when things got tough, they just folded up and left. And fired everybody. And you had companies in Wilmington that through, you know, through the worst of it, stayed in business, found a way to pay their employees. And like, what's their reward? Nothing. I mean, obviously they're still in business, they're making money, but why are you going to reward someone who, when the thing, you know, when the going got tough, they just bounced and they fired everybody. And so why are you going to reward that? I, I would rather you say, you know what? There are companies in town that stayed in business during the, the toughest part of the economy, and we're going to reward them with a $10,000 bonus or something like that. That to me would make more sense. I mean, they've been employing people. I mean, they've been gone from this place for nine years. Other companies have been here for nine years. That's nine years of people paying property tax, people paying sales tax, people paying, um, you know, being a part of the community. So why don't we reward those companies? Why are you going to reward this flash in the pan company who the last time bounced out of here when things got, what happens if things get tough again? I mean, who, you never know what's going to happen with the economy. Do we really relying on them to be able to hang around? Last time they showed they didn't have it in them. And so that to me, it, it's even more frustrating. But the thing that's the most amazing to me is as angry as I get at Republicans and as hypocritical as Republicans are on this, they don't hold a candle to the left. Because at least the Republicans, the ideology is similar. So, I, you know, Republicans believe, you know, supply side economics, you help companies out, that increases productivity, increases investment, the economy gets better. Democrats ridicule us for that belief until it comes to incentives. And then all of a sudden it's film incentives and uh, solar subsidies and all of these things that are essentially supply side trickle down economics 
And for some reason, they don't seem to connect those dots. And it, it, it makes my brain hurt when, when I hear Democrats advocating for film incentives or solar subsidies. And my question always is, in fact, I was actually having a Twitter debate with Harper Peterson, who's the former mayor of Wilmington, now running for um, state Senate. I asked him, I said, wait, so you're telling me that you support film subsidies. So you support giving taxpayer money to a film company in the hopes that it'll trickle down to Wilmington employee. Now, he didn't respond to that, of course, and he hasn't responded. But yeah, I mean, what's the difference between lowering the corporate tax? And obviously that, that hits everybody. I mean, you have Roy Cooper one minute telling us how we got to raise corporate taxes because we're losing money. And then the next minute he's at a ribbon cutting for Credit Suisse because we just gave him $50 million. And it's like, what? (laughs) These can't exist in the same space. Those are absolutely opposite uh, economic arguments. And it just, it, as mad as I am at Republicans, it's amazing that liberals don't get more flack for it. Well, I mean, are you surprised at the hypocrisy? I'm listening and I just say, yes, of, of course, that's their mentality. That's the same mentality about everything. There's a very there's a very conflicted state in the center of a modern progressive. And I haven't quite figured that out yet, but maybe some sometime in the near future, someone will crack that code. And the, the, well, I will say the one point that I wanted to bring up to what you were saying is that I think what has been fascinating about the way the incentive argument has evolved is that now you are really moving towards uh, a, a statist, fascist type economy where you are having local uh, local municipalities and counties buying facilities as part of incentives packages. I mean, that's what happened with one of the incentive packages in Asheville. They, they bought the warehouse that the company was going to go in. The company is going to lease it from them. But of course, what happens if the economy tanks and this company closes down? Well, now we're landlords. We're going to have to sell that or rent it out. I, I, I cannot wrap my head around the complete shift in thinking. And these are, you know, like you said, Republicans that support this, the left that supports it, you know, Democrats that support it. Everyone across the spectrum is, is championing on, well, you know, we need these jobs. And it really ties into the, to the whole Trump um, populism thing where everybody just thinks that the government should should facilitate jobs. And I don't understand why anyone doesn't realize at this point that government actually does the opposite. They destroy jobs. Yes. Well, they destroy jobs and they don't create jobs. What they do is they allow companies to create jobs. And it's really kind of frustrating because, you know, you mentioned Trump. And ever since Trump's gotten elected, one of the things he keeps touting is how he's created all these jobs. And all these other Republicans are just continuing to um, parrot those talking points. And it's like, guys, how many times do we have to go over this? The government does not create jobs. And what's so frustrating under Trump for conservatives and for free market economists and um, you know all of us out there that think government needs to stay out of private sector is that because Trump is a quote unquote businessman that people go, oh, well, I'll let him pick winners and losers because he'll pick good ones. Now, I'm not going to get into the litany of business decisions that Trump has made that maybe would show that he's not the best person to pick winners and losers. He's had way more losses than he's had wins throughout his business career, but nobody should. I don't care how good they are. I was just going to say, I think you would probably have to go to Trump University to study all of this. <laughs> I mean, I tell you, I don't want Jeff Bezos making those decisions. I don't want anyone. I don't care. I don't care if it's Warren Buffett. I don't care if it's Elon Musk. I don't care who it is. I don't want any politician because no matter how smart they are, how great they are, the market is a much better decider. 
Uh, it's just, that's just the reality of the situation. And unfortunately, I think sometimes when you do have a businessman and a Republicans in charge, Republicans get a little lax with our way of thinking. And they're like, oh no, that's actually okay. If the Republic, you know, cause I trust, I trust Trump or, you know, I trust McCrory or I trust whoever Republicans in office. And so I trust them to make those decisions. And it's like, guys, no one should be making that decision. And I think that's, and I think one of the big issues right now is this Trump, you know, sort of going after Amazon and making these arguments out there. And a lot of Republicans are like, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I, I think Trump is bringing up good points. It's like, okay, maybe he is, but can we imagine if Barack Obama was president and was single-handedly attacking one company? I mean, we'd be losing our mind. Like how dare the president go after a job? I mean, Amazon is like at one point, and I don't know what this, you know, latest drop in their market cap, uh, how, if they're still, but they were like the richest company in the world at one point. And the president of the United States is trying to tax them and regulate them and increase their costs. And it's just nuts. If Obama was doing that, how crazy we'd be going. Uh, but you know, to bring it back to North Carolina, I don't want anyone, especially Roy Cooper. I mean, Roy Cooper spent what one year of his life in the private sector. I definitely don't want him picking who should be the winner and who should be the loser. And like I said, even here locally, I mean, uh, chairman, the chairman of the New York, uh, the New York County commission, Woody White, uh, he's, a, I mean, he has his own law firm. I mean, I trust him. I think he's a smart, very smart guy, very smart when it comes to business too. I mean, he's running a very successful law firm. I still don't trust him to make these decisions. And so we need to be consistent because once we say, oh, well, it's okay for this person to pick, well, that's Pandora's box. It's open and you can't, you can't close it at that point. Yeah. And I mean, not to get overly philosophical, but I think that the point you're making is that is something that I've thought about a lot over the last, well, several years, but especially the last several weeks with a lot of the national discussions is a lack of fundamental understanding of what the role of government is. And I don't mean that in a very, you know, dumbed down way. I mean, I mean, really, what what is the role of government? Is government where you send a bunch of people to make decisions on how your life works? Is that really what was what was the intention? Or is it government to make sure that all of us were able to just live our lives the way that we saw fit. And I feel like now you have so much meddling from both sides, whether it be constitutional rights or in the, you know, I heard someone talking recently and we don't have to go down this particular rabbit hole, but they were talking about the Cambridge Analytica and Facebook data breach fiasco. And they're proposing a, um, uh, an internet bill of rights where they want to regulate what, private companies can and can't do um, with information that we are freely giving them. And it's it's something that's so difficult for me to wrap my head around because obviously people are upset about their privacy, but at the same time, you are freely interacting with a service that lets you look at cat videos. Like what, what else <laughs> are you, are you getting in return? Like, of course they they are having to do something to, to front all of the money for development and running this operation. Yeah, they're making money off you. Google does it. Facebook does it. Um, You know, any other company that has the opportunity is going to do the same thing. I mean, every grocery store chain does that through their, uh, you know, MVP card that you swipe when you check out to get a discount. Um, So like I said, not going down that rabbit hole, but I think that people don't like, they want government to step in when it's convenient for them. Well, I think there's also, there's a fear factor. Remember, we talked about this um, uh, a couple episodes ago where we talked about um, how when the Soviet Union collapsed and Hollywood needed a new uh, villain, the computer. 
uh, became the villain, like hackers and all. And so, you know, people hear privacy and they, you know, the internet, social media, the majority of people, I mean, I, I've, I've built websites. I like to consider myself somewhat proficient and I still don't understand the inner workings of the internet and everything. I mean, if someone were to ask me, I, I mean, I could give them a basic understanding, but you know, firewalls and all these things, no idea. Um, and so the average person, especially let's face it, you know, Republican voters who tend to be older, um, have even less understanding of it. And so it's very easy. So they hear these things like, you know, Facebook and data and privacy and they, and they freak out, uh, not knowing that they've voluntarily given up. I mean, I, I saw one person joke online that, um, you know, Amazon has essentially put a robot in everyone's house that's listening to all their conversations and everyone's freaking out because Facebook sold uh, the data on which Disney princess you are, according to the quiz you took. And it's like, exactly. I mean, the things that people willingly give up and now they're freaking out about this Facebook thing. It's just, it's a, it's sort of a fear of the unknown and it just fits perfectly with, so, you know, Amazon, like, oh my gosh, when if you ask people, what exactly does Amazon, wh- what exactly are they doing that's monopolistic? Oh, they're putting stores out of business. W- which ones? I mean, I drive around, there's stores all over the place. W- which stores? Like, there's no market in which they have a monopolistic control over. I think even ebooks, I think maybe that's one of their big ones. It's still not completely, it's still not a complete monopoly. And then e-commerce, they own a big portion of it. But really what they are is they're in everything. I mean, they're, they got a newspaper. Um, they got a grocery store now. They're doing a lot of things and that scares people. Uh, but the reality is, is that it's because they're good at what they do. And, and, and they, yeah, I mean, it's because it's they're lowering prices. I mean, Donald Trump the other day was talking about how, or today was talking about how uh, Amazon's ripping off the post office. And so he's going to make Amazon pay more. I'm like, no. So what you're really saying is you're going to make the customer pay more because we pay shipping. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever bought anything online, but when you buy something online, you normally pay the shipping. And so the cheaper shipping is with Amazon prime, it's free. They might take that away if it costs them more. And so they're not going to eat that. They're going to pass it on to us. It was the, it was the reason why we passed the tax cuts. Uh, because the cost of companies, they pass on to us. So why we're going to make Amazon incur a new cost, they're going to pass it on to us. It makes no sense. And so I think it's a fear that people have because they don't understand this stuff. And so when Trump is like, oh, Amazon's doing this and this, everyone goes, okay, that's probably true. But no one really knows what Amazon does other than sell stuff for cheap, owns a grocery store and a newspaper and has you know these grandiose plans but if you were to ask someone which market they're dominating in, I, I, I can't find one. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it, it, it's it's more of the hypocrisy, right? And I think if, if anything, people should be thankful that um, Amazon probably saved the post office. I mean, let's be honest. I, they're having to go out and deliver on Sundays now because of the volume and and the demand. And everyone was talking about how mail is at an all time low. So, I mean, isn't isn't Amazon really saving an entire industry that we're going to have to end up bailing out in the end one way or the other? Because Amazon's going to open its own postal service. They're going to just start delivering everything themselves. Well, somebody said that and then they said and then we're going to be angry because they're putting the post office out of business because everyone's going to use Amazon mail when they eventually, you know, Amazon drones, all the things that we've heard about once they do that. And then everyone's going to be like, why would I ever say anything for the post office? Then everyone's going to get mad that Amazon's putting the post office out of business. And so you can't win. When you're successful and you're good at what you do 
you cannot win in many people's eyes because when you do that, especially nowadays and with this interconnected economy, you're going to put people out of business. And this is what Milton Friedman referred to as the visible versus the, you know, um, invisible. And the, you know, the people that get fired are the visible. What we don't see are all the people that are hired and, and all the, you know, the indirect benefits from lowering costs in one area that allows us to spend money in another area. This is how capitalism in the economy works, at least in America. And so people don't see that. And this is why the populist movement has developed the, the way that it has. And I, and, I, and I don't think it's a debate that should be automatically be dismissed. I mean, I think we should be having this debate in the Republican Party. Should we maybe not be so focused on growth? Maybe it is not a horrible thing if we look at ways to, you know, redistribute the wealth. Like Jeff Bezos is worth, you know, how many billions of dollars? Uh, does he need another billion uh, or could we, you know, redistribute that money to the workers or something else? And that's, that's, yes, that sounds like Bernie Sanders, but that's what populism is. And I think as a society, you know, let's face it, people want to see the minimum wage go up. They want to see, uh, I mean, yeah, I want growth. But yeah, if we end up in a country where only one or one guy has all the money because he created the best product. I, I mean, I see the argument. Um, I don't agree with it, but, you know, that's that's why we have elections. And clearly the people are saying, hey, maybe we should be looking at some of these, con- you know, th- these um, uh, these companies. And I think it's a question the Republicans and the Democrats have to have because Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders sound a lot alike. Yes, yeah, uh, you're, you're starting to sound like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I was supporting it. I'm saying <laughs> that people are calling for it. And, you know, this idea that we all support all these, you know, pro-growth, maybe not. Maybe the Republicans, we, you know, we always trick ourselves into thinking, um, oh, handouts, you know, hand ups, not handouts. That's BS. The Republicans support handouts. Um, you look at some of the programs that we put into effect. Those are handouts. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I think that we dismiss it. We go, oh, welfare is bad. OK. And and food stamps are bad. But we love a lot of things, you know, you know, the earned income tax credit, uh, the child tax credit. Uh, some of these other programs that we have, I mean, these are all technically handouts that we're giving to people for really not doing anything. Um, and so we do support those. And so I think we shouldn't dismiss it because the people clearly are calling for it, whether they know it or not. Well, and I think it's I think what's largely missing from the discussion is a relative versus absolute um, perspective. I saw an article the other day that people were sharing around how more millionaires than ever had been made in the last year or five, or I don't remember the time period. And everyone was using that to point out how much income inequality there, there was, because obviously someone sharing it on Facebook is not a millionaire. Therefore, this isn't fair. And I was looking at it as someone who's not a millionaire who works a, a lot. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, maybe I should get some of their money. But what what was implied in the headline that I don't think anybody was picking up on is that this is the best chance that we've ever had to become a millionaire. Like, isn't that the great point is that if more than have ever done it in a single year has happened now, that that's a great time to be alive. Right. And, you know, we don't see what the wealth creates, you know, we don't see that that money goes into a bank and because banks now have a, ton of money from all these rich people that they can then loan it out to people who want to start their business and start that approach or buy their first house or a car or something like that. Um, 
so I just think that we, we lose a lot of perspective in a discussion when we make it simply, you know, what do I have versus what someone else has instead of saying, you know, what do we have historically as a society that no other society has ever had? What do we have as a country that most countries in the world do not have? And so there's a lot of perspective to be gained. Well, and, and the thing is, is that you're 100 percent correct. And you know, one of the problems that we're facing and this goes back to once again, the invisible versus the invisible is that everybody, everybody, I don't care where you are. I don't care where you live. I don't care you know, what you do, whatever it is. Everybody's life in this country is better than you know, 50 years ago. Uh, Kevin Williamson one time wrote a great piece in which he talked about, say, uh, for example, today, going, going out and buying probably the, the, the most common everyman car, a Toyota Corolla. For, you can get one for like 20 grand. Uh, and maybe you spend 30 and get it fully loaded. That car is better than the nicest car that John D. Rockefeller had. I mean, light years better with regards to safety, technology, everything. Um, uh, our medical uh, the, the, the tools that we have that the average person has with regards to vaccines uh, and just red, regular medical care is light years better than any any of the Rothschilds had 100 years ago. And so the thing is, is that one of the problems with mass media, and this has always been my theory, is that because we, we know more, you know, back in the day, if you lived like in a small town, like let's say in North Carolina, Maybe you'd see like Robin Leach's Lifetime of the Rich and Famous or something, but you didn't really see it. You didn't really have any idea. You know, everyone you kind of hung out with was kind of like you and maybe it was a rich guy in town, but you didn't see the just opulent wealth that exists. And now you see these guys, you see that the Hollywood celebrities, you see the private jets, you see all these things and you go, man, that's messed up. That's totally unfair. But you don't realize how great your life is, like how awesome the things have developed in your life and the things that you have available, you know, from everyone, most people having a computer, a smartphone in your pocket, flat screen TV, uh, you know, access to the Internet, all of these things that the average family has. And we and it's funny because people actually will scoff at that when you go, well, you do know that the average person today, like 99 percent of households have a refrigerator. And people will laugh at that and be like, oh, a refrigerator. Well, guess what? That was not common for the majority of the time that humanity has been around. This is a modern convenience, air conditioning, things that we take for granted. And if you bring them up as a luxury, people laugh at you. When 50 years ago, you know, you were you were you had to be a millionaire to have these things. And so I don't think people realize because we all play the game, right? Everyone likes to look at what everyone else is doing and they go, that person has that and that person has that. I don't have that. So my life, therefore, is worse when in reality, all of our lives are better. And now there is a problem. Um, There are, you know, we are seeing a decline among uh, white people Uh, for the first time. The life expectancy for white people has actually gone down. A lot of that has has to do with rural parts of the country, the opioid epidemic, smoking and things like that. Uh, and so no, there is a legitimate issue there because every other ethnicity and gender, but white men are actually, um, their life expectancy is actually dropping. And so that is something that needs to be addressed. And arguably, maybe that's why Trump won. But, every, but for the most part, everyone is better off. Uh, even if you don't think you are, even if you know a factory you were working closed and now you have to work at some other job that you don't think is as good, your life is still better than if you would have had that job 60 or 70 years ago. Just the things that are available to you that you can buy in the store every day. And most people don't recognize or realize that. 
Yeah. I mean, a lot about life is being thankful and appreciative for what you have. And I think that's one of the biggest travesties of postmodernism is a lack of appreciation for for what we do have. Everyone focuses on what we don't have, or they focus on the one bad thing that happens and not the thousands of good things that happen. And, you know, I, I, they get so focused on the negativity. And, and Tyler, you and I have seen that where you see these people who just, they get so focused on either the other party or a particular ideology. And they just like push all of the happiness out of their life. Like they just dwell on how bad things are and don't stop to realize how great things are. And I think people on the right and the left are are very much guilty of, uh, of a lack of perspective. And I think one of, you know, one of the things that I have really thought about uh, recently is the idea that because we're in this social media age and this mass media age that we're just constantly bombarded with photos of, even if it's our friends and we go, man, they just got a new car. That, that's, I, I wish I could get a new car. I had this, or you see them out eating dinner. They're on vacation somewhere. I, I swear every day, someone in my Instagram feed is on an Island and I don't know rich people. You know, it's, it's insane. But what we don't do is stop to think about what perspective they're in. You know, maybe that person is maxing out a fifth credit card to go on vacation, or maybe their grandparents left them money. Like you, you don't know their situation. And I think a lot of times we just don't have that perspective to think of what, um, you know, what we have in relation to them. Like, what do they value? What, what are they willing to sacrifice or give up to do the things that we see as something that we may be jealous of? And we just think that, you know, all these people are, are on a private jet or they're doing this or doing that, but maybe they actually don't have operable income or as soon as they lose that job, they lose everything. And, um, I had a, a good friend of mine who was talking about how much time he had spent in the multi-level marketing world, uh, you know, Amway and, and different things like that. And, and timeshares was one of the things. And he said he worked with a sales crew of people that made really good money. I'm talking like three, four hundred, five hundred thousand $500,000 a year in this sort of high stress sales environment. Mm -hmm. And the managers and supervisors would push them to max out all of their credit. You know, if, if they made an extra hundred thousand dollars this year, they'd say, go lease a $200,000 car, you know, go buy a bigger house, go buy a yacht, but take your family on an expensive vacation because they knew as long as they needed that money to keep fueling their, their habits, that they would stay hungry because they were afraid, well, if someone made half a million dollars for four or five years, they might save all that and leave the company. But as long as you could keep them motivated, chasing after something. So you might see people that are driving a brand new luxury car, living in a big house. And at the drop of the hat, they're going to lose it all. So that's just sort of my rant on perspective. Well, and yeah, one of the interesting things about, um, finances is, and I've heard people say this, that if you're not surviving on whatever you're making and people always go, well, if I was only making an extra thousand dollars, an extra, you know, $2,000, whatever it is that I, I would be okay. Well, no, because then the argument is, is that if you, you know, if you can't make it, let's say 30,000, that you're not, you're, you're going to be broke at 60 and you're going to be broke at 90 and broke at hundred because you're clearly living above your means. And one of my favorite quotes is if you live below, if you live above your means now, you're going to have to live below your means in the future. And yeah, people are leveraged like crazy. People have credit, all these things. And that's actually, 
you know, you look at Japan. Japan's had a stagnant economy for for two decades after the collapse in the early '90s. But one of the things about Japan is Japan has an insane saving rate, and that's actually what's causing problems for Japan's economy. Is that people are so terrified of the collapse, they're saving so much money, and that's why they have negative interest rates because nobody wants to spend money. Everyone saves it the minute they get it, and that does create a problem for the economy. But Everyone is in a situation where if things went haywire, they'd be okay. Meanwhile, our economy, one of the negative effects of a good economy is that people start people stop saving. Uh, and you're seeing that right now. People are saving less than they were, you know, five years ago. It's such a weird phenomenon that happens. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's that's also a component is that you have people who are insanely leveraged. I mean, I, I can tell you a story from personal experience, or at least you know, someone I know. You know, my my dad was in the banking business. And you know, I won't use any names, but uh, a, a mutual friend uh, had to went went to see him because he needed to borrow money for a deal that he you know that there was an investment deal that was made available to him, and he he needed ten thousand dollars. This guy made um, this is mind you, this is back in the nineties. This guy made a million dollars a year, and he didn't have ten thousand dollars cash. Now maybe a lot of his other money was tied up in investments as well, which is possible. He wasn't liquid. But the fact that someone that makes a million dollars a year doesn't have ten thousand uh, dollars, you know, in a, you know, for an emergency to put into an investment or something like that, or they can't save it within a time period, is insane to most people. Uh, but that's the thing: people get on that, you know, they get on that that treadmill, and they just never think about things that could happen. But it's the same thing. You look at it, you see someone they have all these nice cars, all these nice houses, but they have zero money in the bank. They have zero money. Um, and it's the same thing the other way. You know, you see someone who said they don't have anything, uh, but in reality, they're like a millionaire. And actually, my mom, one of my dad's friends worked at one of the big Mercedes dealerships in uh, D.C. And they said that never judge someone. That, they said they'd have people that would come in with an Armani suit on and they couldn't finance a pogo stick. And they'd have a guy come in with overalls and he would buy a car in cash. And it was like, you can't judge anybody. Like, you never know. And so I think that also plays into it where people just automatically, and that goes into what do you call it? Um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a bias that exists with people, a cognitive bias where people look at someone and automatically assume that, you know, everything is great and everything is awesome with them. Uh, but in reality, it could be awful, just like their situation. But people don't tend to make that associate. It's kind of like, the, you know, the, you mentioned the social media. You know, you only see people's, you know, highlight reels. <laughs> you don't see, you don't see the horrible bills that are piling up on their desk because they can't make the minimum payment. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of resentment. Uh, and unfortunately, it's leaking into politics and um, it's on both sides. You know, Republicans like to think it's only Democrats, but Republicans are doing it too now, where it's like, we want this and we want that. And, you know, we don't care if the rest of the economy suffers as long as you open up a steel plant. And maybe that is a good thing, but that sounds an awful lot like what Democrats say. And so there's something boiling up. There's no doubt. And I think it needs to be addressed by our politicians or it's going to get worse. Yeah, I mean, I hate to see the constant discontentment between people because everyone is envious of what the other person has or what someone else has, but yet they they don't know what's going on. You know, I, th I think that's the biggest thing, you know, whether it be I think you've brought up the the analogy before people attack the CEO of of Starbucks for making X amount of dollars. And he goes, well, what if what would that actually translate to to 
all of the people that are employed who have health insurance and who have benefits and who have a job. I mean, people act like having a job is a given. And I think that everyone should be able to have a job in a perfect world. I mean, there's never 0% unemployment, but, but at the same time, having any job, you know, and I, you and I have had some awful jobs, Tyler. (laughs) I was talking to somebody the other day and I was kind of recounting the stuff that we've done. I mean, I've carried luggage and, and that you used to be the breakfast lady. And I mean, we've done some, some really just like minimum wage, crappy jobs. Like there's no other way around it. Like they're not the worst jobs in the world, but nothing that anyone would be proud of to put on a resume. And Yet, I mean, we were thankful for that. Like you have to be thankful for that because it's it's providing you an opportunity opportunity to either gain experience or just to get by financially. But yet I think that there's that mentality with the minimum wage argument that everyone should have a certain standard of live and living given to them. And I mean, I think it's hard when you start you know, trying to, when you start trying to move sand from one end of the box to the other. I, I agree. Um, however, I do think that they're, but like I said, and actually that brings up a good point. Um, it's actually another story that we might get to if, if we don't run out of time. Um, but what is the job of a representative um, and a politician? Are they supposed to run with people, represent what the people want, or are they supposed to represent the right things? And if people are demanding that we redistribute money, even if that is a bad thing, should we do it? And I don't know. I don't know where that is. Um, the problem that I have is that people are selling this ro- incorrectly and that Bernie Sanders, you know, the liberal wing of the party and the populist wing of the Republicans, they want you to think that we can, you know, put up tariffs, uh, devalue the currency, all of these things to lower, you know, the trade deficit, which they look at as a bad thing. And we're still going to see growth when in reality, it's not going to create growth. But like I said, Japan has been stagnant for two decades. And yet, arguably, the people there are doing fairly well but they don't have any growth. The economy is not growing. And so we're a $20 trillion economy. Do we need to grow? Now, arguably we do because of all these entitlement problems that we're going to be running into very soon. Um, But let's say we remove that component. Like maybe we don't need to grow. Maybe just, you know, redistributing the money is not the worst thing. I mean, like I said, Jeff Bezos is worth, you know, $50 billion. Let's take $2 billion from him and, you know, provide it to other people. I mean, I'm against it, but the people are clearly calling for that. I mean, that's what, you know, opening a steel plant at the expense of the steel user, um, you know, industry is exactly what that is. And yet Republicans are cheering for that, saying this is a good thing. And the liberals, you know, the Bernie, like I said, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump sound a lot alike because their populism is that populism is, you know, fighting for like the little guy that's getting screwed by capitalism, that's getting, you know, in trouble because of uh, creative destruction and the, and the disruption that takes place. And so the question is, is that, is that a bad thing? I mean, we've, you know, like I said, Republicans, I think we sort of scoff at that idea because we think it goes contrary to what we're arguing, but the Republicans are arguing. I mean, tariffs by, by their very design are redistributive. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. They're taking money 
uh, and artificially um, pumping up one sector at the expense of others. That's that's exactly what they're doing. People are calling for that. Um, other things that that you know that people. I mean, there's just there's so many programs. I mean, even like Social Security and Medicare. Uh, I mean, through the entire the life of those programs, people have been getting more money out than they paid in because they're living longer. I don't see a lot of Republicans arguing that we should have a cap and cut it off. Uh, and so we do support programs that take money from others and give it to other people. And so I think we have to have an open discussion on this because there's a lot of, um, I think, trickery going on. And I think it, it, we, we need to have a discussion about this and we're not doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think it boils down to a lack of an honest conversation. Nobody is actually, they're afraid to say what they're really thinking. So they try to come up with some convoluted, uh, you know, reason. And this goes from the gun debate to the economic debates to, uh, you know, entitlement reform. Everyone's too afraid to say what they're really thinking or what necessarily has to be done. But, you know, I I think that this whole discussion goes back to uh, some wise words from a great philosopher that was something along the lines of mo money, mo problems. And I think that's what we're, we're at now is that it just, it just piles up. It gets more and more complicated. Um, cause now we're just, I mean, nationally we're like Enron, we're just making up, uh, you know, ways to calculate things and shifting money around. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the thing is, is like I said, you know, the shifting money around, um, you know, may not be the worst thing. Uh, and, and, and maybe that'll be a good thing, but I still don't think it is. I mean, I, I, I still believe in, you know, free markets. And like I said, the fact is, is that everyone, you know, people can go, Oh, did you know that the average American wage has been stagnant for 20 years? And it's like, okay, but everyone seems to be doing pretty good. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, there are people that clearly maybe aren't in the best place if you're living in some of these towns where the factories left. But I mean, the fact is, is that the average person is still doing better, Uh, even if their wage hasn't gone up because of the productivity gains that we've seen in pretty much every sector, people are living better. And so the problem is, is that what metric do you use? I mean, because like I said, we could devalue the currency, which would lower the trade amount. You know, we could absolutely just bottom out the dollar and our trade deficit would evaporate overnight. Um, And then guess what? We'd have to start paying people $100,000, but that would be like the minimum wage. So is it, is that a good thing? I mean, inflation has been low for 20 years because of globalization and because of all these things we've been able to accomplish. We haven't seen crazy inflation, which has allowed wages to remain stagnant and people still live a life um, that was better than it was 20 years ago, but their wages haven't gone up. And for some reason, people, you know, I get it. People put a lot of emphasis on the wages, Um, but that's a bad metric because it matters what's happening in the overall economy. We could increase everyone's wages by devaluing the currency, which would make that a necessity. But is it better if you're making a hundred thousand dollars and can't afford to pay your rent or making $30,000 and you can pay your rent and you can pay, you know, and and, and be able to buy a car. Uh, and so I think that's one of the problems is that we only focus on one metric of the economy and people go, well, I got screwed using that metric. Well, yeah, what about all the others? And that's, and economics is a complicated topic um, and people see what they want to see. But I think that's one of the other problems that we're facing. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of it too, is that you, um, you know, you're looking at the, the situation you know, in a way that should be similar to the way you look at a business, right? And I think the problem is that from a national perspective, the national federal government is so burdened with with debt 
that it's it's not going to be able to run in a cash flow positive way. I mean, if you went into a business, let's say you walked into to, to Toys R Us and they said, OK, well, now we need growth in this company. You're not going to get growth until you get your your basics in order, until you're not just paddling to stay above water. And I'm afraid that's where we're at. I think it's not going to be until there is a complete shift in, um, you know, I mean, obviously we have fewer people in, in newer generations than the baby boomers. There's going to be a realignment. I think there's going to be several years of tough financial times. And I don't think that we're going to see growth as a nation until we have a, a complete change. And I don't know if that's redistributive like you're talking about or, if that's just a new economy, because we're moving away from, uh, you know, manual labor and the industrial economy that we had for a hundred years, I, I don't know exactly what it looks like, um, but I just don't see us being successful in any sort of actual growth because I think all the, any growth that we have seen is is artificial. I mean, we saw that it, it started in two thousand nine with the stimulus. And it's, it's just been that way for a decade now. Well, I'll tell you where we can get the growth from. And I was reading this the other day. Um, so you're right. We were a goods oriented sector, you know, manufacturing. That's what we did. Uh, and clearly other countries as they develop and build. I mean, China's moving away. China, that's why this negotiation with China right now, they're actually moving away. Uh, they're okay with reducing the trade deficit because they actually want to move away from manufacturing and getting services. Because... For example, America, we uh, our number one uh, uh, sector is service. That's what we provide. But I was reading something the other day, and they said that it is the almost untapped marketplace in the world. That we um, are only we're exporting a minimal amount of the services that we could offer the world. I mean, think about like these other countries as they're developing. You know, we could offer legal services, we could offer you know financial services, all these things that we have developed through our development that we could offer the rest of the world. And they said that if we were to do that, I think they were saying it was like um, four, five, six times the growth if we were to open that up. And that is the next market because we're never going to be competitive when it comes to making things. It just doesn't make sense. But we are good at the high knowledge, um, you know, education, uh, like I said, you know, service oriented jobs that we can provide for all these developed. So all these factories that are opening up in China, you know, who needed their books done, we could offer them that service um, and we can offer it to all these countries that are developing. And that's what we should be focusing on exporting because that is an untapped market. I think someone said it was like only 25 percent of it's been tapped. And if we were to tap all of it, I mean, it would unleash so much growth in this country, the amount of work that we would be able to do with all these other countries, it would be insane. But we're so focused on the way things were like, oh, well, we did manufacturing for 100 years. So that's the only way that's that's why the trade deficit is such an antiquated way of, you know, of, you know an, an antiquated scoreboard, if you will, is that it doesn't give you a true picture of the true value of what we offer. Because if we were to open up our services, I mean, the trade imbalance of the countries would be insane. Like, I mean, people think this trade deficit's bad. We would we would have a trade surplus on, with services. I mean, it'd be like 10, 15 to one in some cases. And that's so much more valuable to us because it's easier to export. It's cheap to export. And it doesn't require anything else new other than, I guess, language barriers, which would, how many jobs would that create? And that's where we're going. Um, if we're willing to, to, to fight. So Trump right now, when he's fighting with China, should be fighting to open up the service markets that we should be allowed to get involved in their economy more. Not that we can sell them more crappy 
you know, soybeans or, you know, pig snouts or whatever it is we're selling them. We should be selling um, our knowledge base sector, which is completely untapped. Do you see a lot of pig snouts trading on the um, on the international <laughs> commodities listing? Well, um, I was I was reading this morning that one of the things that we sell China with regards to pork is we sell them like the miscellaneous crap, like the hooves and like the, or the hooves and the, um, uh, like the the tails and like the weird crap like that. Like that that's China's like our biggest buyer of like the weird stuff that that comes off of a pig. That is fascinating. That is maybe the most informative point ever on Tavern Voices. <laughs> well, no said, idea. That's why they say you don't want to know how the sausage is made. I was like, I don't want to know what they're doing with the with with the tails, and this. I don't want to know what they're doing with that. That is that is phenomenal. But you know, you're exactly right on the service side. Um, that if you look at what are the major successful companies of the last decade, and you're obviously going to think of Facebook, Google. Amazon and Apple, yeah, right? Major international players. I mean, these are all fighting. I mean, they were old companies for what, 20, 30 years, ExxonMobil or something was the most valuable company. And now it's been Apple and Amazon fighting it out and, and Google and Facebook are not far behind. And what are they making that money off of? Services. So exactly. why aren't we looking at what is driving the economy? Everyone's 401k and every state employee's pension plan is benefiting from a service industry. Yet the, com- the conversation is always over a hundred jobs at a factory in, in rural Wisconsin. And yes, we need people back to work. Like that's not the point of, of disagreeing with what they're saying. It's that we don't need to revive dead industries and pro- not even revive, but prop them up when the the true money out there, the true economy is coming from services. Even Apple, I mean, Apple would not be what it is today without the services component. I mean, it's great. You can make great hardware. They do a good job at it, but that's not what has made them so valuable. It is all of the services, all the money that they've made off of off of either advertising or purchased apps in the app store. I mean, that's where all the money is coming from, reoccurring service payments. Yeah, I mean, this, I mean, like I said, and the thing that's amazing about that is that when you're when you're manufacturing something, and then China goes, "Well, hey, we want something." You what do you have to do? You have to ramp up manufacturing. You got to do all these things. But with services, you know, you got to hire more people. But you know, the export. I mean, think about what it costs to ship like a car to China, like everything that goes into that. Where if they want to say buy our accounting service, let's say they want someone to do the books at one of the factories, like think about how easy that is with the internet. And it, it just it, it makes so much more sense to export that because there's almost no cost involved and there's no new training. You don't have to build a new factory. I mean, all you got to do is maybe hire someone else, maybe. Um, but more than likely, you can probably just have someone already doing it. And then obviously, as you get more business, but it just it's it's such a better thing to export. It sucks to export things because, there, you know, there, there's problems with, you know, you, who knows what could happen on international waters. You could have something happen to the boat. You could have theft, all this stuff that can happen, not to mention just the overall cost that goes along with it versus, you know, a selling a service. I mean, the profit margin on a service is like insane because it's all upfront cost. All, all the cost of a service is you have to, you know, get to your education, you have to get certified, you have to learn all these things. But then after that, it's almost everything that you do from then on out, you make more and more money off that initial upfront cost. When you're manufacturing something, it's every time you make something, you're putting money into it. And so service 
seems way, way better uh, for us to go down that path. And I'm hoping that's what we're doing, but I'm afraid we're not because Trump keeps talking about, you know, the trade deficit, which is basically just goods uh, instead of services, which is where really where we should be because China realizes that that's why that's the, that's, that's the direction that they're moving. And we have an opportunity to get ahead of China. Um, but I, I hope we take it, but I don't know if we are. Well, I will be keeping my eyes glued to the international scoreboard and uh, and and seeing how things play out. And, um, you know, before we close, Tyler, I you brought up something much earlier in this show and I didn't want to leave until I ask you a follow up on that. And um, I, I think everyone wants to know which Disney princess were you when you took the test? <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, I never actually took that one. Should I say, like, which is the princess I had the biggest crush on? (laughs) You just you just you just say what you feel you need to say. This is your format. Oh, whatever. Like, everyone doesn't have a crush on one of the Disney princesses. I mean, come on. I mean, whatever. That's that's fair enough. I mean, you're you're right. Who who doesn't? And um, you know, I, I just hope that all of those tests that all of us took are safely stored somewhere in Facebook because I don't want any more political ads based on what Facebook was <laughs> I took. No, I agree. I, I think it's it is. And I'll t- actually, what's funny is I've had. Uh, throughout my entire social media, even when I was on MySpace or Friendster, um, is that I never got into the quizzes and I always was very hesitant about just, you know, people get like into that high of just like adding all these people. So I luckily uh, have very little information. I haven't taken a lot of quizzes or done those like stupid anything. So I have been, I'm actually, I look back and I'm like, good job, Tyler. Your social, uh, your antisocial behavior actually ended up paying off for once. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going there too. I think I'm I'm just about completely done with Facebook, and I'm I'm considering writing an article to put up on Tavern Voices about um, ways that people can kind of just back away from from Facebook a little bit, uh, you know, unplug some of the the information you've put out there and, um, you know, back it off. I just, I, I think it's not healthy and I don't want to get into a whole discussion, but I've just found the less I'm on Facebook, the happier I am. I don't know if that happens to you or just, or if it's just me. The less you're on Facebook. Yeah. What did I say? Did I say the more? No, you're right. You're right. I, I just, I just wanted to make sure I heard you correctly. Um, no, well, and they, they've said that the best way, if you're interacting on Facebook, like you're communicating, uh, like, for example, it was funny. Um, uh, a friend of mine, his niece actually ended up winning the um, Drive, Chip and Putt. It's a uh, national competition for junior golfers. Oh, wow. His niece yeah. won the uh, seven to nine year old uh, girls division and she got a phone call from Jeff Nicholas and he posted this thing on Facebook and he said, you know, my eight year old niece is cooler than me. And of course, you know, I jokingly was like, Sorry to break it to you, but like most people are, are cooler than you. Um, but like, I, and the reason I bring that up is not because of how witty I am, but it's funny because they say if you communicate and like, you know, you're involved in conversations and you joke around and you post like, hey, good job, that actually makes you happier. But if all you do is observe, that actually depresses you because you feel like you're missing out. And so by commenting, you feel like, so someone's on vacation, you go, oh man, looks great. Wish I was there. Like, hope you guys are having a great time. You're, you know, that person's going to like the comment. You're going to like the comment. You feel like you're part of that person's life. They said, that's actually what you're supposed to do. But if you just watch 
and don't comment, you, you're like, oh man, I wish I was there. And you're kind of like depressed. And so they said the best way, if you're going to be on social media, don't just observe, but interact. But don't interact obnoxiously, uh, but interaction in moderation, they say, is actually the way for you to be happiest on social media. Isn't it amazing that we're having this conversation <laughs> and now like society has gone to a position of where we have to talk about the proper way to interact on a digital impersonal device. Well, I think it's, it's amazing. Always, I, I think it's always been that way. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, they, they've, and they've actually said that that's, I mean, there's, and I wish we had time for this. This We should do another show on this where they talk about um, one of the big uh, drivers of death that they're concerned about is loneliness. Um, that people are becoming more and more isolated uh, because of social media where people no longer have friends and they communicate, but they don't actually see people. And it's, it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And But I think it's always sort of been there where people who were sort of antisocial and like didn't want to go to parties and didn't want to do all these things. Like you're, you're, you've been there, right? Where you go to a party, like someone goes, hey, you want to go to a party? And you're like, I don't know. And you're like debating it. And then you go and you're like, man, I'm so glad I came. Um, oh, 100 percent. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so I think that's the same way with Facebook. It just you just see it because it's kind of it's right there on your phone. But anytime you choose to be social, you're going to be happier um, versus when you choose not to be social. And so that's always something that people have had a problem with. Um, I just think that social media exacerbates it um, because you can kind of be social without being social. And I think that that's that's the bigger problem. But the loneliness thing is is terrifying about things that are happening in society. No, it is. And and we've ran out of time, Tyler, but are you feeling lonely? Like, should we stay a little <laughs> bit longer? Uh, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm in a room by myself. And that's the, you want to something really weird is that, so I did um, a Tim Boyum show on a, a Spectrum News, Capital Tonight. And I've, I've been going on Tim's show since 2012. So that's like six years. And it wasn't until a Donald Trump rally that I met him in person. I had never met him in person and people like, you know, cause we, we, you know, we have good chemistry when we talk and I have him on my radio show and I, I go on his TV show and I told people I've never met the guy. Like I never met him in person and it wasn't until, and it was like two seconds. He was like, in, he was standing in line to interview him and I was walking out and he was like, Hey Tom, I was like, Oh, Hey Tim. And then, you know, I, I was getting ushered to go do something. Um, but that was the only time I'd ever seen him in person. And so it's so weird that we can have these, you know, like you and I doing the show, um, but we're doing it in separate parts of the state and, you know, we're, we're not actually seeing each other. We're not in the same room and just, it's, it's just, it's a bizarre time we're living in. It is. Well, what we'll have to do is plan a, um, an in-person show. Yeah, at we, some we will. Point. We will. We can, and we then can meet we'll, in the middle we'll somewhere. To, yeah. And there's nothing good in between here and there. I'll go to Wilmington. Well, it's really okay. <laughs> we can meet like at Smithfield on I-40 and do it like in the back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it at the uh, at the outlet malls yeah. off ninety five. We can do it at a rest stop and see see how long before the cops show up. <laughs> like, us sitting, There's free Wi Fi. <laughs> us sitting like in the backseat of a car, like talking into microphones. <laughs> see how long before someone calls the cops. They'll think we're the government, so <laughs> I would probably be fine. That's true. They're like G men over there. Watch out. Well, until we uh, until we meet again, either in person or digitally, it was uh, good talking to you again, Tyler. And uh, let's keep the streak alive and uh, go three for three next oh, week. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm, we might even go four for four at this point. I'm feeling good about it. Hey, well, keep the streak alive, man. Anyone can win at this point. <laughs> All right, dude. I'll see you, man. Take care. Take care.